Anti-Asian violence is surging across this country. Deadly shootings in Atlanta. This morning, a man attacked and assaulted a 52-year-old Asian-American woman. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have all reported a rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans. Across the country, over 3,000 reported incidents of hate against the Asian community. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today, we introduce a new segment, Many Roads in Conversation. Usually, on our podcast, we focus on the experiences of migrants coming to the United States. But within conversations, our focus will be on an issue experienced by communities already within the U.S. In this first series, we'll look at the historical roots of anti-Asian violence. In 2020, the United States saw a disturbing rise in anti-Asian rhetoric and violence. In 2021, a gunman murdered eight people in Atlanta, Georgia, in a racially motivated attack. Today, we will hear two voices in dialogue as they talk through the issues raised by these attacks, including historical restrictions on Asian immigration and how today's liberation movements might address acts of hate. In conversation today are Jennifer Fang and Eliza Canty-Jones. Jennifer is the Director of Education at the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. She is also an adjunct professor at the University of Portland, where she teaches modern U.S. history and Asian American history. Eliza is the editor of the Oregon Historical Quarterly and the Director of Community Engagement at the Oregon Historical Society. Due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, they spoke on the phone in late March. Here is their conversation. I'm not used to speaking to people without seeing them now. I'm so used to Zoom. So I know. It's a little strange. It is. It's awesome. Um, so, Jennifer, let's start out where we planned. If you'll just tell okay. us about your family and your childhood. So I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s outside of Washington, D.C. I grew up in a town called McLean, Virginia. Um, it was... I. I want to say it was about two miles, just it was like just outside of Washington, D.C. My family and I lived in, you know, sort of like a, an upper middle class, middle class, um, you know, subdevelopment. I'm the first American born generation in my family. Um, you did an Instagram takeover for Five Oaks Museum last year. And there's a photo that you shared of yourself as a child, I assume in this neighborhood, and you're standing on the sidewalk and you're holding a large sign with your name written on it. <laughs> it's taken in the 1980s. So the color, you know, it's kind of sort of faded. It's a little like, it just, yeah, it's just kind of a faded, slightly blurry photograph. And it's of me as, I think, under five, I would say. I don't, I, I can't say how old I was, probably three or four-ish. Um, I'm standing on the sidewalk in front of my family's house, which is, you know, kind of a, a medium to large sized um, standalone colonial style house. I'm standing in front of this house and I'm holding a, a rectangular cardboard sign that just says Jennifer Fang on it in black letters, black calligraphic letters. I don't remember that much about having the photograph taken, um, but I wanted to share it 
for for the Five Oaks takeover because I think that it really shows, I mean, in, in my mind, as much as I don't like to admit it, like I am a child of the suburbs, you know? And I think that that says something about this like very particular type of immigrant experience that is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, you know, I mean, we see, like when you look at studies now, there's kind of this, there's like a shift in where well-to-do young white people are living and where where immigrants are living. It's like, you know, sort of a flip where like young affluent people are moving into cities and immigrant populations are moving out to the suburbs. But, you know, my experience and the experience of so many people that I that I grew up with that I know it was like it was always sort of based in in these suburban areas and and that's where like we built these ethnic communities. I grew up speaking Chinese. In fact, I um I didn't speak English until I started preschool. So probably not until I was uh I, I'm I'm guessing three or four years old. You know, I feel like my, it's interesting. My parents um they immigrated in the nineteen seventies. Um and I think it was largely a product of like this post-1965 wave of immigrants. My dad was, um, he was a television broadcaster in Taiwan. And he came to the United States to work for the Voice of America. And he was, for the, for the VOA, he worked as a radio broadcaster and broadcast programs in, in Mandarin into mainland China. Um, so that was, I mean, you know, I think when we think about immigrant stories, this like migration of like white collar immigrants is not really something that, you know, first comes to mind when I think when we just, when we think of immigration in general. family was part of the post-1965 wave of immigration. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that for folks a little bit, why that year is significant? So in 1965, there is a um, major immigration bill that's passed. It's just called the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. I think it's also called the Heart Seller Act. Um, this law comes on the heels of some major civil rights era reforms like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It's coming, you know, in a climate where um, American policymakers are really trying to, I think, trying to improve race relations in the United States. And so immigration reform is one of those areas. Um, this law overturns these quotas that used to define the American immigration system. And these quotas were, they were established in 1924. They're pretty racist in their logic. Um, so each country was assigned a numerical quota for how many immigrants they were, that were, they were allowed to, you know, to come to the United States. And those numerical quotas were based on I think what American policymakers thought of as like, who is most fit to become an American. So like, 
all immigration from Asia was banned and immigration from Europe was kind of like ranked hierarchically where there were more immigrants from England allowed than there were immigrants from Italy, you know, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And so the 1965 law overturns those quotas. It implements a new set of criteria for prospective immigrants, and it's kind of ranked. I think the, the areas of priority are family reunification, um, skilled laborers, um, and other laborers who other other workers who are skilled in other in particular areas that the United States was like, ha had a shortage of basically. Um, and it also I think prioritized refugees as well. And so what this law does is it essentially changes i think the racial demographic of the united states at, in the you know in the in the decades that follow after 1965 we see a, a lot more immigrants coming from asia and from parts of latin america um than from europe um post 1965 inf immigration really helps prompt the immigration of a lot more like well-educated more highly skilled immigrants coming from different parts of china and the chinese diaspora so one of the things that we want to talk about today is um, the history of, of violence against asian people and asian americans in the united states and, and in oregon that 1943 was when the Exclusion Act was finally repealed. And so I wanted to ask you to just give folks a, an, an explanation of what the Exclusion Act was um, and also invite you if you want to talk about violence in that context as well. So the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882, and it was um, the law basically banned the immigration of Chinese laborers um, and made it impossible for Chinese people who are already in the country to become naturalized citizens. So it very successfully kind of curbs immigration to the United States from China um, in a legal sense. What it doesn't necessarily, it's like you can pass a law to stop something, but what that means is that those people doing that thing and who continue to do that thing will just now be doing that thing illegally. Um, and so this law essentially, you know, stops legal Chinese, Chinese immigration, but kind of like helps create this whole problem of um, illegal Chinese immigration, if you will. So this law, it gets passed in 1882. It's really important because it is the first exclusionary law of its kind to like basically to ban an entire group of people based on racial prejudice. Um, this law becomes the blueprint for all subsequent exclusionary laws when it comes to immigration. Um, before 1882, the United States, of course, had like been a xenophobic nation for a very long time. And that xenophobia was like directed at different groups of people at different points in time. But there had never really been any laws to like curb immigration. Um, the Chinese Exclusion Act is the first law of its kind to do that. It's kind of this turning point in American history where 
the nation um, begins to think of immigration as something that needs to be controlled. And so from 1882 on, we have a number of other exclusionary laws placed against um, various other groups of Asian immigrants. And then in 1924, you get the Immigration Act of 1924, which essentially is the law that places those numerical quotas on different countries in the hopes of bringing the United States's racial and demographic mix back to what it was in the 1890 census, I believe. So I should also say that the so the Chinese exclusion law doesn't get overturned until 1943. One of the things that's interesting, like when we're thinking about violence, is that there was a lot of racial violence and a lot of like agit anti-Chinese agitation leading up to the passage of the 1882 Act. Um, something interesting that I've learned in like doing, you know, doing research and reading about this subject is that this violence didn't like after the after the exclusion law was passed, this didn't stop anti-Asian violence. In fact, like something that we see is that anti-Asian violence, I believe actually escalates after 1882, because for, for those who were, you know, hoping to ban Chinese immigration, like it wasn't enough the the exclusion act didn't do enough. They wanted all Chinese people out of the country. And so a lot of the anti-Chinese violence that we see coming up after 1882 is really fueled by that desire to like remove all Chinese people from this nation. And so, you know, that, that law, it's funny. It's like, it curbs, it curbs Chinese immigration, but then it just like fuels anti-Chinese violence. And, you know, the fact that this law essentially like codifies anti-Asian sentiment into law. Um, you know, it, it makes this group of people kind of vulnerable and, you know, relatively powerless in the face of this aggression. But, you know, something that we also see during this time, and I think, you know, throughout the history of Chinese people being in this country is that there's like constant pushback among um, among Chinese Americans against this racism, which tends to be, I think, erased in, in the history of um, Chinese Americans. Like we tend to think of it only as like a group that has had violence inflicted upon it. And we think a lot less about the ways in which these groups like actively resisted this violence. Is there a story about that resistance that you want to share? So one of these, I think, more notable acts of resistance is the 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 court case of that Wong Kim Ark brought against the United States. Um, so this individual Wong Kim Ark was uh, born in San Francisco to parents who were both Chinese citizens um, who resided in America. So Wong Kim Ark, when you know when he's in his twenties, goes back to China to visit family. And when he returned to the United States, he was denied entry on the ground that he wasn't a citizen. So this was in, um, I think this was in the 1890s. It was shortly, it was a few years, like, or maybe a decade after the passage of Chinese exclusion. 
Um, and so the case that he brought was essentially like, is a child who is American born not like if if this Chinese if this child who is American born to Chinese parents, like is this person a US citizen? So the the decision here was that he was a US citizen because of birthright citizenship. And so essentially like the takeaway is that birthright citizenship is a right that is upheld through this um through the work of Wong Kim Ark and you know those who helped him essentially. Um, and so, you know, we see moments like this. I mean, we also see like communities coming together to, you know, to, to fight against um, violence or to push back against, you know, other forms of marginalization. I'm really interested in like history as a narrative um, and how how stories of the past or how historical narratives are formed. Um, and so that I think was something that was really interesting to me was that I, in some ways, I think I viewed it as like, as a story of sorts, but you know, a story that is real. I also like history because it explains the world to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think, but yeah. I don't think I realized that until just the past few years. So <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So you also work, you're, like you said, you're on staff at the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. You've worked at the Portland Chinatown Museum. You advise projects at the Oregon Historical Society. What, wh why and what do you want to, <laughs> to bring to that work, right? I just want to be in on these conversations and help where I can. Um, you know, I think I'm, what, what I've come to realize in the, you know, in the past year or so is that there's an interest in these stories that about, you know, on a local level, like there are these, there's an interest in, in stories of um, Chinese immigrants in Oregon and of Japanese immigrants in Oregon. And, you know, I think it's really important that we kind of integrate these histories into the overarching narrative of the state. Like, this isn't, I, I say this a lot, but it's like, it's, this isn't just one paragraph in the text in textbooks on Oregon history, like these stories of these immigrant groups just need to be, it's just Oregon history, period. Like it's as, is as much part of this, the history of this state as is the history of, of Lewis and Clark, you know, it's like all these pieces make a whole. And I feel like this is something this is like where I can help add to that knowledge. You know, it just seems to me that if we all knew about these histories, then maybe more people would be outraged and called to action um, or inspired to, you know, to, to act. What prompted us to, to have this conversation was the, um, murders two weeks ago now where uh and this is an extreme and and highly visible example of this violence that is ubiquitous and long-standing in the united states right and so this young white man murdered eight people in the atlanta area including um six asian women and i just want to say their names while we're talking their names are delana yon 
Paul Andre Michaels, Xiaoshe Tan, Daiyu Feng, Sun Chung Park, Huan Chung Grant, Sun Sha Kim, and Yang A. Yu. And so when you first heard about these killings and, you know, in the two weeks since then, how, how, have, how have you been thinking about, about them and about your place in the United States and your work thinking about this? My hope is that there is a lot more like coordinating and brainstorming and like actively working in a collective sense toward change, right? So like, what are the next steps? For how do we move on from this? Um, we need to grieve, but now is the time when we need to kind of make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again. And that, you know, I think there really needs to be like a reworking of how a lot of Asian American groups envision their racial liberation. Like, mm. um, I just, I guess I just think that a lot of Asian American groups really need to be looking to like, other other ethnic and other racial groups to you know to kind of join together and to see that you know we're not free until we're all free i i read this article just uh over the weekend i think about how in the san gabriel valley which it has this like huge asian population um there were like sort of these generational divides um, between these two protests that the journalist witnessed. Um, there were these protests in uh, the city of Alhambra, and there was another protest in somewhere else in, in the San Gabriel Valley. And this Alhambra protest was organized by, I think, relatively younger Asian Americans, um, individuals who had been organizing and active with Black Lives Matter. Um, and, you know, in that protest, what we're seeing, what, you know, what, what they were calling for was, you know, a decriminalization of sex work, a need to protect mm -hmm. the most vulnerable in the community, a need for the abolition of police. Um, you know, they're seeing this issue as related to a lot of the issues that plague Black communities. Um, and then this other protest that was somewhere else in San Gabriel Valley, I think comprised of a lot of, I want to say maybe older Asian Americans, um, maybe first generation Asian Americans. Um, and a lot of that was kind of, you know, these more general calls for stopping Asian hate, um, for calling, labeling this as a hate crime, um, you know, for essentially, I think by extension, calling for the need for, you know, for Asian communities to be protected. Um, perhaps, you know, I don't, I don't want to put words into their mouths, but, you know, perhaps by an increased presence of, of police. Um, and so it seems as though for Asian American communities right now, they're kind of, it's like, you know, how do you want to move forward from this? which what how does change happen like what is change going to look like is that change going to look like a real desire to unify different racial groups in this country for the ultimate goal of dismantling white supremacy or is it going to look like making sure that asian communities are protected 
through an increased police presence that we all know, you know, unfairly targets black and brown people, therefore causing a greater racial divide. talked some about um, historical erasure, and I think you've you've touched on that a little bit today. And I, I feel like that's related to some of what you're talking about right now. Um, because I think there's the there's the erasure of Asian Americans in history, broadly speaking, and then also the erasure of violence against Asian Americans in history, which, you know, we even saw some of in the immediate police statements and media coverage of these shootings in Atlanta, where the shooter claimed it wasn't racially motivated and then the police officer just repeated that, you know, at face value. You know, that this issue of erasure plays so much into um, the history and the experiences of Asian people in the United States. So as you're saying, like, not only is the history erased um, and the, you know, the contributions, the experiences you know, that is all, you know, that's, that's been erased from the historical memory. Um, but then the reproduction of these like stereotypes about Asian Americans that kind of benefit Asians in certain ways, but really just serve to uphold white supremacy, um, leads to the erasure of anti-Asian racism, anti-Asian violence, that people don't see violence against Asians as racially motivated um, because it doesn't fit into, because Asians maybe don't fit into whatever categories people might have about, you know, who can, who can and cannot be the victim of racism and of racial violence. And I don't want to be like, these people need a lesson in intersectionality. Um, but it's kind of like they do need a lesson in how all this stuff fits together. You know, and then I just also think on a personal level, like the, the relative degree of apathy that I've seen among white people who were so eager to like throw up a, like a, just a black square as their Facebook picture or whatever in support of Black Lives Matter, like just the silence from those individuals in the face of all of this anti-Asian violence, um, that silence is really loud for me. So you you had talked about the, um, you know, wanting to give a lesson in intersectionality and we have just a couple of minutes left, but I wondered if you would wanna speak to the particular intersections of anti-Asian racism and misogyny here in the United States. To like um, dig into painful stuff. Um, I, you know, I think that, so something that we've seen that I've seen like coming out a lot in the aftermath of Atlanta is like, I've seen a handful of op-eds being written by um, Asian American women about sort of the unique experiences of the unique forms of racism that Asian that Asian women face in the United States and that Asian, that probably Asian women in Asia face at the, you know, at the, in their interactions with Westerners too, you know, and I think a lot of it has to do with, it's like a, it's a particular form of dehumanization through over, through 
through sexualization and through just like through racial denigration you know i mean i think of how i I think of how well like in 1875 when we see when we have the passage of the page act which basically said that it was it was sort of the the bill was framed as a this is an effort to stop the trafficking of of people but particularly of women and that it it banned the immigration of it banned the immigration of women who were not immigrating on their own free will banned the immigration of women who were like coming to work who were going to work jobs that were morally questionable so basically sex work um it operates under the assumption that all asian women are prostitutes um and i think that that it's like asian women that law which you know again with so much of anti-asian racism is like essentially codified into law through these like various immigration restrictions that have been passed over the years um i think that asian women through the page act you know have either been seen as these like hyper sexualized creatures that threaten the moral fabric of good white men um or they have been dehumanized as like dragon women so i guess in thinking about you know the shooter in atlanta saying that he was a sex addict and that he needed to eliminate his desires by killing these innocent people you know what we're seeing is that like it's essentially dehumanization right like that these individuals that he killed were not seen as people they were seen as temptations you know that i think that that is sort of this like intersection of anti-asian like racism and anti-asian misogyny like that there is kind of how that operates jennifer i really appreciate you taking the time to talk today um thank you for all of the personal sherry's stories that you shared thank you for all of your professional expertise and thank you for your vision of what we can all be doing now um, to make the world safer for all of us and to build a better future. I'm grateful for you very much. Thank you so much, Eliza. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be able to speak with you. Many Roads to Hear is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. Many thanks to Jennifer Fang and Eliza Canty-Jones for agreeing to have this important and timely conversation and for letting us eavesdrop on it. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Dwyer. Our audio editing was done by Rick March, assisted by Gordon Graham. Music was composed by Corey Larkin. Our executive producer is the quite sanguine Sankar Raman. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.